Hi there, thanks for tuning in to Leading with James Ashton. This podcast gets under the skin of leaders from right across society at the top of big business, charities, arts organisations and more. We explore their successes and failures, the big decisions that must be taken every day and how they made it to the top. To navigate the coronavirus crisis requires great leadership, so I'm particularly grateful to those leaders willing to talk while we are still in the thick of it. This is the first in a short run of one-on-one conversations talking about how COVID-19 has changed the game and how to lead out of a crisis. I'll talk to bosses in frontline healthcare, the City of London, hard-hit charities and the UK countryside. First up, Evelyn Burke is the Chief Executive of Bupa, the private healthcare insurer and provider with 33 million customers and clinics, dental centres, hospitals and care homes in major markets such as the UK, Australia and Spain. We talked about working closely with the NHS, the future of healthcare and some early career failures. I began asking Evelyn how her organisation was coping during the crisis. Well, the organisation's holding up really, really well. Uh, I'm really delighted and really proud of our people. We've, I mean, we've been in this coronavirus world since the um, end of January, really, when it first appeared in China, uh, because we have about 100 people in offices in uh, across Beijing and Shanghai, and we have quite a sizable business in Hong Kong. And uh, of course, so they went into lockdown much quicker. They've emerged from it more quickly. And then it went moved into Europe. And the next place it really turned up in uh, in a significant way was Spain. And in Spain, we have hospitals and care homes as well as an insurance business. And our hospitals and care homes were really at the front line of it. Um, and it was very intense for a number of weeks. Um, but they have stood up amazingly well. Um, you know, we were, you know, able to treat people. We had uh, made, you know, we had capacity. We partnered with the public system, but we had the capacity in our hospitals to uh, look after all the patients that came our way. And uh, we also um, took actions in our care homes very early on to curtail any spread. And uh, that's worked really well. With Hong Kong and China, did you feel like you had an early warning, if you like? We did. We did. And we actually stood up our own internal crisis management protocols um, in Hong Kong and China, first of all. And we enabled our people in China to work from home very swiftly. And uh, likewise, in Hong Kong, we have an insurance business and we have a clinics business. So we had both sides of it. And, you know, we learned in the UK from that and Australia has learned from that again. So, uh, you know, there's been huge transfer of learning and experience and insights and doing it really, really rapidly across the world. Uh, so at the moment, probably the UK uh, is, it's not stressed, but it's the one with the most acute, shall we say, situation in hand. But it feels very under control, very calm. The organisations head up really, really well and stayed focused on our, in our customers and their families and um, protecting their safety and the safety of our people. What's been the toughest call for you so far? I, I can't say there's been any outstanding individual tough call. Or when, I'll ask it a different way. When did you feel that this is above and beyond, this is absolutely like nothing that any business leader of this generation has faced before? Um, once we were facing into lockdown in the UK and Spain, mm. and Spain went just a, actually, probably Spain went about five days before the UK. You just realize there isn't a playbook for this. And uh, the other thing is you can't control what's the responses on the ground in far-flung places from London. You have to actually trust your local team 
you have to stay close to them and support the kind of leaders on the ground in the different situations. So the communication was of you know amazing importance and continues to be of amazing importance and yeah. staying joined up across the globe. But um, you know I can't second guess the decisions you know the um, the leaders on the ground in Spain can make, but I can support them, get them to share it, make sure we're you know that they're also sharing the lessons we're learning with the things that didn't work as much as the things that did work. So you just shift into a completely different modus operandi. Sure. Now we feel that that modus operandi is really well established and uh, <laughs> we're thinking about how do we get out of it? Yes. Well, I'll come on to the, get, the getting out of it. But I should say, of course, there is a degree of remote leadership in day-to-day Bupa because you have markets, UK, Australia, Spain, um, other markets as well, 33 million customers, and then clinics, dental centers, hospitals, and care homes all over these, um, all over those territories. So I guess some of the time you're um, you're on the phone or or video conferencing um, Australia, Evelyn. But but I'm interested in have you done it all from home then for the last month? Your the, the work has come to you, if you like. Oh yes, um, from the 23rd of March, I've been based at home, and uh, it's been all uh, mostly video conferencing. Initially, we were Skype. We've moved to Teams and and some phone calls. But uh, you know, I've gone from being someone who was uh, an occasional user of Skype to feeling like, okay, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a world expert, but it's the default tool of communication now. As well as, of course, the usual emails and and all of that. And does that work just as well for you? It has actually. I, I mean, you know, you do miss the social interaction you get, you know, in a in an office environment. That casual connection, the you know, ease of, oh, I want to talk to you know my um, CFO. Well, I can just go to her desk and grab her. Whereas now, if I want to talk to her, I have to text her and make sure she's not in a call. So you you go into a different organizing rhythm and you settle in. It's I mean I'm, I've always believed that humans are incredibly we're incredibly adaptable. That's why we've survived and sure. you know come to the where we are in the picking order of the planet. But um, you know you just see it in you're living it day to day in the in the experiences that we're having in this uh, COVID nineteen world. And what about the your um, connection with what's happening on the on the front line in in the hospitals and, and the care homes where you say you've been dealing with the outbreaks? What has been an amazing strength of Bupa in response to this crisis is we have um, we have a belief that every country operates quite differently. So even though we're in insurance in seven or eight markets, we're in health insurance, it's the actual product is different market to market. It covers a different range of uh, conditions and circumstances because it has to be tailored to the circumstances of the market. And all countries in the world have different setups of um, public and private systems and different health issues. The human body might be the same across the world, but the actual systems and therefore our businesses have a lot of local autonomy, you know, around how they go to market, their distribution channels, the product design, the contracting with hospitals, etc. Um, but it's within a framework where, you know, we have standards and governance and risk appetites and all that, you know, classic proper framework. But I have to work through my, you know, management structure and rely on them to be close to the action on the ground. Sure, there's no point. There's no point in you calling the shots um, from from where you are for Spain or for Australia to to a degree. Yes, I was going to say, what about when, when the imperative is saving lives? And clearly, there's a lot of that anyway when you're in the healthcare industry. Yes, but is this is this a moment where when you're having those chats with the finance director and you know Bupa? hasn't got shareholders it's company limited by guarantee are you are you at the stage where you say well hang the cost let's just spend whatever we can to battle this pandemic 
Yes, that would have been an understanding from the get-go. Um, the first and foremost priority was to look after our customers um, whose lives are in our hands and our people. Um, so whatever it took to get, you know, PPE, um, to get uh, ventilators, um, say in Yaki and the team in Spain, they had the authority to go and do that. They needed to do it in a, in a responsible fashion and made sure they got the right quality of, you know, material. But you know, they were they were taking action in the moment to address the real-time challenges of literally saving lives. One of the things in this crisis, the public and private systems have to work much closer together. Um, and that included the social care systems. But And it's a matter of public fact that in the early days, we, we were ordering PPE, for example, in the UK. But some of our PPE was being stopped at customs and redirected to the NHS because you know, the government was saying the NHS is the imperative. We obviously had to engage with government to say, do you know, realise this is causing potentially huge issues? So it wasn't just a matter of throwing money at it because we could throw all the money at it. And if the PPE supplies were still getting diverted away from us, you know, that, was, that wasn't the problem. So it's uh, now we've, now we are, there's a much better flow of PPE. The PPE we order ourselves is coming to us and also, the NHS is, depending on its supplies, is also reaching out and um, supplying us with PPE where we need it. So you're happy with, the, the obviously, are, would have been teething problems because there's no precedent, but largely the public and the private have bumped along and you're happy with the support that has come from the, the NHS and the government? Yes, it's it's it took a while to kind of, if you like, normalise, but that is um, vastly improved. Yes, including support for testing of staff and testing of residents and everything, yes. And then how is it, I'm interested because there are, I suppose, well, I look at you, there's kind of two sides of your business. There's provision and there's insurance. And everything we've talked about so far is is provision, not surprisingly, in, 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 a, in a crisis. What has happened to the, the insurance side of your business? Are, are people still buying insurance? Are, you, are your offices uh, you know, empty? What, what about the volumes and things? Yes. So, I mean, first of all, with our office-based people, particularly insurance, they were all shifting to working from home in the last week in March, and that went remarkably smoothly, uh, particularly the call centres staff, because they needed to talk to customers who were ringing up saying, you know, am I covered? Um, what can I do? Where do I go? People looking for advice of all sorts. And um, we would have had in some of our policies exclusions for pandemics because that would have been regarded as good risk practice, given they're very uncertain. But we removed those exclusions in respect of COVID-19 very quickly. Now, the um, this comes back to the point about health insurance operates differently in all the markets we're in. So, for example, in the UK, you have a big public system and the role of the private sector is to complement the NHS and the role. And therefore, typically health insurance in the UK covers elective treatments in private hospitals. It doesn't cover typically acute emergency type of treatment. And so it was very, very clear from the get-go that most of the treatment insofar as it would be needed for COVID-19 would be provided in NHS hospitals. And that's why there was just such a huge concentration of resources and um, expertise in NHS hospitals. But we provided, we rolled out, customers still needed advice and help on other matters, even though they couldn't go for non-emergency treatment into private hospitals. But say someone who's in 
on a cancer treatment program, it was agreed they could still stay availing of their radiotherapy, chemotherapy, that spaces would be set aside in the private hospitals to enable them to do that. Now, we had to get on and negotiate with our colleagues in the private hospital system, you know, how to how to make that happen and ensure that for those customers, they had continuity of care and access. But if it was non-urgent elective like hip replacements, or those would have to wait while the private hospitals were prioritised around supporting the NHS. And the same was playing out in Spain and in Australia uh, and in Hong Kong. And, you know, not surprisingly, we had some a lot of queries from brokers and customers and corporate customers on, well, you know, what's the value in my insurance policy if I can't get access to the treatment that's been covered? So we made a pledge to customers, which is published on our website in the UK and in Australia, that we would not make any exceptional profits from you know, claims being much lower in this period where access to the private hospital system for uh, elective treatment is not available. But also we were emphasizing to customers, we're there for you. We'll, as soon as the availability comes back, we will be, um, we'll be you know, able to support you. And the other thing that's worth mentioning about our UK insurance business is in the past, it used to be the case that if you wanted to claim for, you know, you think you're worried about you might have cancer and you want some diagnostic tests, you first of all had to go to a GP and then the GP would authorise you to come to Bupa. So a couple of years ago, we introduced what we call direct access. So we have qualified people on telephones out of our Manchester office who can talk to customers who think they might have symptoms of, you know, different types of cancer. And they can advise them on where to go, what consultant to talk to, where they can get diagnostic tests. And that's, you know, that's actually been very helpful at the moment because people are afraid to go to GP practices. You know, everyone's just concerned about not running into the running the risk of getting the infection. So some of the things we've done in the past um, have actually come to the fore to help customers at this time. But we're also keen to see private hospital capacity come back on stream. Interestingly, this week, part of it has been reopened in Australia, which is great to see, but we're keen to see it being reopened in the UK because uh, I think the UK has not been hit with as much COVID treatment. It's been high, but it's it actually had more capacity reserved for it than it actually needed. So, you know, it's it, there's actually parts of the private hospital system that are standing empty and there are you know, consultants who are standing empty. So I think there is scope to encourage people to come back and get the right advice and diagnosis if they think they might have symptoms of cancer or cardio or other things. It's, it is really important that people, there is a fear that people are staying away from all health advice at the minute because of the, the worry about the COVID infection. And we may therefore see people present too late with the cancer symptoms or other issues so it's um, it's a matter of real concern to us, and, and that sounds like your your feeling as well. If if there are if you say there are, uh, you're saying it's private um, hospital capacity is is lying empty as we speak. Yes, it is. It is. It's it's that there are you know consultants and staff willing to to work to support people. There'll be protocols and testing and so forth to check that people are not arriving with COVID symptoms and therefore need to be redirected to places that are designed to be looking after people with um, with COVID. So during all this, Evelyn, what, how do you apply yourself, if you like? What What is your, how would you define your, your leadership style and how does that come into its own? Um, 
Well, I suppose a, a couple of things. I think, first of all, we have always got to keep the customer front and centre. So that, you know, that absolute priority of focus on the customer and enabling our people to stay safe and well, you know, is even more of a, you know, north star for us as an organisation. Um, at a personal level, I think what works is um, probably pretty calm. I um, it's probably takes a lot to phase me. Um, I tend to be kind of looking at, well, what are we going to do and how are we going to be organised? I do have, um, I'm very fortunate that I have a great team of people around me. And I guess I've known, you know, quite a number of them for now quite a long time. So we have, a, I think we have a strong bond of mutual trust and we've, we communicate, we're now using, you know, we're communicating far more often given the circumstances. So, you know, my, my instinct is to, if someone's wrestling with something, you know, hear them out, see what I can offer. If I can't, you know, offer something, maybe I can see someone else who might be able to help. Yes. So a leadership style, which I think is, I believe is customer focused, is calm, is action oriented, is built on trust, is built on giving people the remit to get on and solve the problem, asking people for complete transparency about what they're worried about. I mean, that's a style we've been trying to work in for quite a while, you know, just that helps us manage the risks. Um, so it's not just tell us that you had an issue and you fixed it, um, but actually tell us what you're worried about, what you have your eyes on, and that way you know, it might be of benefit to others. We might be, we might have, there might be a solution being worked on in one part of the organization, which could be relevant. And, you know, all my people operate like that. It's fantastically reassuring. So it means I, I don't have to worry that I don't know stuff that I need to know. I don't have to worry that I'll get surprised by something occurring in the, in the news being written about in the newspaper that I'm not cited on. And um, I'm interested, you talked about looking, looking forward at um, uh, as how things are coming down the pipe. I guess you must be assessing now what 2020 looks like, you know, to Bupa in common with many businesses. It's effectively a write-off, I guess, but then you've got to look ahead at how you lead out of the crisis, how you pull your people up and how you um, get the wheels turning again. Yes. You know, so, so insurance businesses are on a, on, a, on a different rhythm and the focus there has to be about enabling our customers to get access to treatment um, and not having overly long delays. And, though, and you know, we can, we can work remote, we can work in office, but we're planning to actually resume some in-office um, presence once that's... Um, once the government signals in the different countries that we're in that they are easing uh, lockdown. And we're preparing for all of that in terms of thinking about uh, setting up the office environment to promote social distancing. Um, uh, you know, for example, in again, Hong Kong are ahead of us on this. They have temperature checks for everybody coming into the office or coming into a clinic. There are masks. We make you know, non-surgical masks available for people because if you, that's just a, you know, it's a good protective mechanism, you know, all the usual things about sanitizers and so forth. So we're planning actively for getting back into, into offices, drawing on the Hong Kong experience. And we are also then in our provision businesses, working up detailed specific plans for those businesses that have been closed. So for example, dental businesses in the UK, Spain, Australia, have been more or less shuttered since the the lockdowns have happened, but you know we need to ensure that our dental practices can operate such that we assure our customers of treatment in a safe environment. So and that our staff can operate knowing that they're safe. So we'll have to have social distancing. We'll have to have 
you know, cleansing of the uh, equipment and actual tools of the trade between treatments. So there's lots of really nitty gritty operational detail to be figured out such that our um, businesses like Dental will be able to um, open up and assure customers and our people of having safe conditions to operate. Which I think is a big business for you. It's about a thousand dental centres you have now. Uh, across the world, yes, yes, about um, 450 in the UK. So yes, it's very big business, but um, you know, there's again, very strong leadership across it, people who really know what they're doing, very connected to our staff, um, keeping a constant communication about what's happening, um, you know, I was speaking with, um, on, we had a call yesterday of leaders and uh, 150 top leaders in two parts over the day yesterday. And one of the people we invited to just share what he was doing is the chap um, uh, who is leading our dental business in Spain. And Jesus is his name. And Jesus has really, really detailed operational plans around, you know, what will, how will the practices be organized? What's the equipment they need to have? Where there might be screens? How do you actually, uh, looking in detail at the customer journey, how do you make sure the customer spends the minimum amount of time in the dental center such that, you know, things that can be done digitally like booking appointments and paying for appointments can all be done before they actually come to the center. Um, Lots of training of people, um, looking at how do you actually flex the schedule of the working day such that um, you're going to see fewer people per hour, but if it's a longer day, that way you can see more people uh, looking at weekend working. So that's the level of, you know, absolute operational grip um, that people who lead those businesses need to have. um, And and they have it and they're doing, you know, they're really doing a fantastic job. So because the key is we are going to come back in a, with COVID world, with social distancing, limitations on international travel, limitations on gatherings, etc. And we're, you know, we're not doing this on our own. We're talking to governments, we're talking to other cor- companies, sharing across the organisation as well, to get ourselves prepared to emerge from lockdown. And the industry then, what, what, do, you, what do you think it does strategically? Because the, um, you know, you are not a high margin business. Um, I, I see from looking at the, the 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 numbers, and it's become harder over the over the last couple of years for various different uh, factors. And then you you tie that together with medical medical costs are already going up faster than than general inflation. I just wonder what happens whether um, there's more state spending on on healthcare companies invest more in it or feel they can't afford to invest as much if we go into a depression. What's your readout for 2021 and beyond? So 2020 itself will be a very tough year for provision businesses like dental and that where, you know, they've had to be shuttered for a number of months and then they will come back and customers won't all come back right away. It'll be, I think there'll be a bit of a gradual build up as trust and confidence is restored. But assuming we we kind of graduate, gradually recover into a new normal run rate um, where uh, there are new protocols which are different from in the pre-COVID world, you know, we would think that the provision businesses like dental will be able to get back up to more of a normal operating rhythm, but in a world where there'll be, you know, much greater emphasis on on health and safety. And we're standing behind our people and our dentists to ensure that they are with us when um, we're able to snap back. I mean, governments on their own can't afford the total, co- I don't think the total cost of, of health in, you know, in the different economies across the world 
you do need to encourage people who can afford to pay for themselves to do so. And so I think there will be a bit of a rethinking of, you know, what are the relative roles of public and private? Because I think public systems probably are the the backbone that's there for, you know, first of all, support um, is a minimum support for everybody in society, but also must be there for people who can't pay for health themselves. And also governments are typically the ones you you do look to to be the first port of call to respond to infectious diseases and you know pandemic crises like we have. And some of the stuff that's been done has been fantastic, like building field hospitals, commandeering, you know, being able to source ventilators and critical equipment um, very speedily. And there are actions that governments can take which are very hard for individual private players uh, to take. Um, and uh, but there will be things. I mean, there'll definitely be. You think about you know, are there are the supply chains for a critical equipment robust enough? Is the supply of PPE in the system robust enough? I think there'll be issues about the reliability of supply for drugs and treatment. Um, and again, some of those are roles where the government and the public systems, you know, would naturally provide the lead in a in a country um so i think we will see you know um, more system level thinking overall such that um countries across the world don't get caught out again in the way covid-19 has exposed um the fragilities of the system but there'll also be a you know thinking about well the public the partnership between the public and the private sectors both have roles to play it's been demonstrated by what's happened in Spain and in the UK both can work together really well. Our um, Cromwell Hospital has been designated a specialist cardio and cancer centre in support of the NHS. So we've been really pleased at how how that has worked. So we it's not I don't see it I see it le- not in terms of you know either or but more in terms of partnership. Sure, for the big stuff I get, I, I get that. Yeah. Yes, and sim- similarly, you know, everyone has talked about in the UK about how. There's this disconnect between the hospital system and led through the NHS and the social care system, which is more regulated by the local authorities. And they those they need to work better together. Joining the two under one minister, as in under Matt Hancock, is a good step forward. But I think what we've seen in the last six or eight weeks has demonstrated that there's more to do to make those systems work more fluidly together so that you know those would be good developments to see in uh, in 2021 and and tell me about i need to talk about your background because um you're you are you have much in common with with the founder of Bupa and that you are both actuaries <laughs> yes um you and andrew rowell i think it is so it's i don't think it's a pre um it's not a precondition to get the job Evelyn, no. but it's a nice thing to have <laughs> and i guess it gives you, as you've shown in lots of previous roles at Standard Life and, and Friends, Provident and so on, that you have to have that real grip on uh, the issue of risk and how risk is, um, you know, is, is priced and so on. I guess that is a you know great skill you've brought with you over the years. I'm interested in how you pick up the rest, the stuff around broader management and communication and so on. Um, well, that's um, uh, really through experience, and um, uh, you know, I, so I qualified as an actuary. God, I finished the exams back in 1987, so that's a long time ago. But I was clear I didn't want to be a career actuary. That was not my interest here. I was more interested in how businesses run 
and how do you make business more successful? And so I probably had a um, a, a kind of finance and strategy, you know, orientation. And uh, but I've always been open to getting new experiences and learning uh, from others. So you know, my early I've spent my first eight years because I started work at seventeen in Ireland in two different insurance companies. Got a you know by comparison with the UK insurance companies, they're small in scale, but actually you can get a lot of great exposure to marketing customer services you know as not just finance is that helpful you get you get the breadth sooner because they are smaller it was brilliant it was absolutely brilliant you just feel you have a more rounded understanding you can as an as an actuary you can kind of understand what the financial plumbing of insurance is but um, my experience of being in life companies early on kind of gave me that appreciation of the different functions which must come together in order for a business to be successful. I then uh, spent 10 years um, coming to the UK in consulting and uh, you know you you get that really fine-tunes your analytical skills and your communication skills because ultimately you have to make the case to people about how you can help them solve a particular business problem still all in the insurance world and um, and then deliver on that provide the right analysis and provide the marrying up the strategic insight with the financial impact um, packaging it all up with um, with really good and high quality communications I then joined um, my first move immediately after consulting was um, was actually involved in a business which didn't work out for a finish um, it was a, a business which was backed by St. James's Place, setting up a financial advice distribution business on the ground in Italy with product being created in Dublin and in Luxembourg. And it was in 2001. And the stock market was starting to go into a kind of nervous phase in 2001 after the tech bubble burst. But early, I went in as the finance director and it had been up and it was a startup which had been up and running for a year. And uh, I had firsthand experience of realizing as a finance director that cash is everything. So it was a, you know, it was a year and a half. Ultimately, the business failed and we had to wind it up. But I got in that 18 months coming out of the kind of rather cosseted world of consulting into a real world experience of coming into a business that looked initially like it was going to be successful, confronting that it actually had huge performance problems and actually was on a massive deviant trajectory away from success, needed more money had to raise some money through the existing shareholders, had to look at selling parts of the business and ultimately had to wind it down. It's probably still some of the most profound learning experience I had. Is that good to be is that good then to be part of a, a flop or a failure, if you like, at that time? I mean it's a good a good a good formative years. I think it is it was the most intense learning experience I ever had because it was real live day-to-day um decision making. And uh, I was very fortunate that at that time, I ended up reporting to um, Sir Mark Weinberg, who's a bit of a legend in the life insurance world. Not used to failures either. Indeed, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Not to indeed, well put. But uh, oh, he was he was fantastic to work with because he was so calm and so look. You know, he looked at all the angles, but he could move at speed. Outstanding stakeholder management in incredibly tricky situations. Also, someone who had a we partnered together nicely because, you know, he, he trusted me to get on with what, you know, I knew I could deal with. And um, and he was there to help manage, you know, the shareholders who were very, who can, as you can imagine, who were 
distressed themselves, shall we say, plus regulators and uh, and other parties. So it was one of the most formative experiences of my life, even though it was a failure. And I would say to anyone, you know, if you have a chance to work in a business which doesn't work out, you will actually learn more probably than you ever learn from some of your more successful experiences. And does Mark count as a, a mentor? Are there other people who who you would pull out who, who've really you know lifted you up over the years? Uh, yes, I mean he was a he was a fabulous um, mentor, and still have seen him from time to time uh, to have chats about how how life is working and what's going on. And after I came out of that, I spent a year with him and Mike Wilson in St James's Place. Um, you know, working on various strategic things. So, um, you know, learned so much from from him. I, I mean, I've been very lucky. I think over my career, I've had some wonderful bosses and I have learned an awful lot from each and every one of them. And they have remained friends and supporters, you know, long after I ceased to work with them. So they'd be the sort of people I could pick up the phone to and saying, oh, I'm wrestling with something I'd really appreciate you know, uh, some advice, some help, or some counsel, or um, or I could say like, oh, I know you went through this. How did you manage it? Um, and we'd meet for whatever breakfast or a glass of wine or a cup of coffee to have that kind of informal chat. So um, I've I've I personally have benefited hugely from that kind of informal mentoring uh, over the years. And you you have great friends. And ride your luck if you can. You do. You have to take advantage of opportunities that come along. You absolutely. Um, uh, I do believe that opportunities don't turn up on a on a nice orderly schedule, and uh, sometimes it's it's uncomfortable. But uh, you know, another fantastic opportunity for me was I was asked to come in and in back in two thousand and four. Bank of Ireland had a business in the UK called Chase Devere, a financial advice business, which had gotten quite troubled as the stock market conditions had um, deteriorated uh, over 2001-2. And they asked me to come in and do a strategic review of it, first of all. And then when I did that, they asked me, would I step in and run it? Because the review said, well, actually, you're, you're probably not the ideal owner of this business because you'll be too nervous about the risk you perceive to your reputation and this business would be more successful in other hands. So, you know, fair juice to Bank of Ireland. They listened to the advice and acted on it. And then they asked me to run the business, to be CEO of a business. Is that the first time you ran something, Evelyn? Exactly. It was the first time I ran something. It was 500 people. It was, there were some fabulous pieces to the business, which had been founded 20 years ago um, in Bath as a financial advice business. And some of the advisors from those early days were still in the business. And they were very influential people but very committed to that business and to their customers. And I, and I had I'd, I'd done the strategic review, so at least I knew I knew what the challenges were and I felt I knew what needed to be done to turn the business around. My job then, once I was made CEO, was to get my arms around the top team of that business and uh, galvanize them around, well, okay, you know, Bank of Ireland is going to sell us, but we can um, create a new future. Let's work together on a new business plan and a strategy. Um, you know, I personally had deep conviction about some of the qualities of that business. And uh, again, it, someone took a bet on me that I could make a, a, good, a decent fist of um, running that business through that process. And uh, it was, um, well, if they can trust me, I can trust myself. So it was, huh. it's a bit like holding your nose and taking a leap into the deep end of the swimming pool. You know, you know, at some stage you'll 
find you'll start coming up levelless experience and there's a string of those sorts of businesses the different there's the chase de Vere's and the standard lives and the yeah. and they're all there or thereabouts obviously financial services um you know life assurance and so on yes boop are a little bit different when you came in in 2012 as as the cfo because you've got that we've talked about it yes you've got the absolute front line um you're really dealing with people's lives and people's well-being were you very conscious when you did that um, and then when you became the CEO in, in 2016, that this was a, first of all, a far bigger train set, but also yes. a, a really, really personal business. Yes. I joined the business in 2012 as the CFO and, um, you know, very taken with um, the people I met, um, my boss, the then CEO, you know, the chairman, the various board members. Uh, so I thought, gosh, this is a really fascinating business um you know real market leader in health insurance does it really well in a number of different countries across the world and then it has this provision footprint which is very varied across the globe and uh, i just thought this was so interesting and then when i was in the business what just hits you like a train is the um the purpose of the business and how committed and connected um, people in the business are to that purpose of helping people live longer, healthier, happier lives. Um, and what I loved in my my three and a half years as the CFO, you know, I got the chance to travel all over the Bupa businesses to meet the people, to get a, an understanding, not just of them from a financial lens, but how they were operationally, to meet people, to kind of understand what it took to lead the different parts of the business. So then when the board asked me to be the CEO uh, in 2016, you know, I I just relished the opportunity um, and I felt that was, I knew what I needed to go at. It was a bit, you know, like I said, in Chase, in Chase de Vere, I'd, I'd done the strategic review, so I had an understanding of the business. And um, so when I became CEO, I felt there was a an opportunity to just do a firm, fine-tuned refocus on the customer and um, and the way we express it in Boopa is our strategic framework, and we talk about having our purpose of longer, healthier, happier lives, our vision of being the most trusted health insurer and provider. And then the pillars are customers. We must be amazing for customers because they customer, customers paying for our products and services are what keeps us in business. Our people are critical to delivering it because it's a service. So our people are the face of Boopa for those customers day in, day out, whether it's in care homes or hospitals or dental or on the phones talking to our customers in on claims or in complaints or queries in our insurance businesses and then the third leg is strong and sustainable performance because you know bupa has lasted for 70 years it doesn't have any shareholders it is self-financing but if it's going to last another 70 years it has to operate with financial discipline an eye on ensuring that the business is sound and operates sustainably. And that replies not just to the finances, but also to how we manage risk, how we think about reputation, the governance of the business, how we show up in the different countries we operate in as a good player to have on your turf. When you got the top job, Evelyn, how, uh, what was the response of your sister? Because she's the nurse in the family, isn't she? <laughs> oh, my family were great. They just thought that was a yeah, they loved it, actually. They loved it. They were, um, I mean, it's a million miles away from growing up on a farm in the middle of Tipperary in Ireland, but uh, but they loved it. And I, tell, I, have a, I have a silly story. My mother sadly passed away 12 years ago, but uh, Bupa went into Ireland in the 90s and my mother had six children on the VHI and she had a hip replacement. But the minute Bupa arrived in Ireland, she dumped the VHI and she switched to Bupa. 
And that was because the Bupa advertising in Ireland was was through the uh, TV channel. All the British TV channels were available in Ireland. And the Bupa brand was so strong in Ireland, even though we'd not been advertising to um, to Irish people at that time, that uh, it was seen as the quality health insurance brand. So the only thing I regret about uh, having joined Bupa in 2012, that my mum was still was not around to appreciate that she would have loved that i see yeah and just finally i'm interested in um you've talked about the people that helped you along the way what about what do you say now to to people either lower down your organization or people that come to you and seek a bit of help and advice because um i you know i i hate to ask the question about you know trailblazing and so on because i try to get as many uh, female leaders on the podcast as i can but i do note going right back i think you were the first or second qualified actuary in ireland so you you are you're slightly used to this um (laughs) leading the way if you like through your career well i mean i started as a trainee actuary in 1982 um there were no women qualified at that point but there were a couple ahead of me and um didn't think you know it didn't occur to me that i would um uh, you know, as I said, myself and another lady were the two, first two women to qualify in 1987 on completing the exams. Um, but as it just so happened, I, I mean, my stance is knuckle down, put the study in, learn, learn and make an impact and be curious. And that's, um, I think, something that stu- stood me in great stead. Um, work to make a difference, um, put the effort in, you know, be committed to the success of the organization that you're um, that you're joining, go and learn, be curious, find out how do things work, go and ask people. And it was lovely. I mean, I was a, just a, you know, a kind of pimply actuarial student um, helping the sales guys doing uh, quotations for, you know, pieces of new business. But I was curious about what they did. So therefore, you know, they warmed to someone. And then, of course, if they were, they might get their quotes done faster. But so there's something about trying to come at everything you do with the um, intention of really making a contribution and making a positive difference. And I love to see people who want to do that. So, uh, you know, it's easy to, uh, and some of those people just shine through and you might have a cup of coffee with them and they say, oh, well, kind of, how can I do whatever? And it is, it's a simple one, you know, learn how you can do more, make a bigger contribution um, study people who seem to be doing it really well, you know, go and ask them how they do it and uh, you'd be surprised what happens. And, and you know, the easiest way into get kind of getting mentored, I think, is to ask someone how you can help do something more, how you can make a bigger contribution. And someone, if someone comes at you with that kind of angle, you're, it's, it's, it's much easier than a conversation where someone says, well, how do I actually get to be the big boss? You know, that's a bit of a me, me conversation. It's a bit of a turnoff. Yeah. It's a bit of a turnoff. Uh, yes. Yes. But how to, someone who re- genuinely wants to do more is curious, has an appetite. Uh, and, you know, there's some fabulous stories in Bupa. Um, I could tell you the story of the lady, Joan, who runs care homes uh, in, in the UK. And for Joan spent 20 of her years in earliest years in Bupa, being an accountant in the insurance business. So when the moment arose where she was asked to take on more, initially to be the finance director for the clinics business and the hospital, she was there and she showed up as someone who totally owned it, who's all across it, who's outstanding operational grip, who's always making a difference. And today she's running the care homes business in the UK and she's just doing a fabulous job of it. Evelyn Burke, thanks so much for the conversation. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this special episode of Leading with James Ashton. 
Please rate and review us if you like what you've heard. You can find more leaders sharing their stories in previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts or through leadingpod.com. They include John Holland Kay, the Chief Executive of Heathrow Airport, talking here about what the UK can learn from big construction projects such as Crossrail and HS2. What we learn from something like Crossrail is that these things are really complex. There's lots of things have to be managed well, interface. There's always a lot of political pressure around sticking to a particular date. There's usually uh, not enough contingency money put in to deal with unexpected things that happen. And so we kind of set ourselves up to fail. And I think that's a real shame because Crossrail will be a huge success. And there's been some fantastic sure. uh, skills used in that. Sure.